two verses uh, which turned into two sermons. That sometimes happens, especially when you're expounding Paul's thought. So in reality, uh, this is the first of two sermons on these two verses. Give your attention to God's word. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he, uh, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you also for uh, the sacrament which accompanies your word. And uh, we ask you through these means, but now especially through the, the, the preaching of your word, uh, that you might shed greater light on, on uh, the words that we've just read. Amen. Well, we're breaking up with what is in essence one sentence, and you might have uh, noticed that. We, we began with the word whom. So clearly uh, we're in the middle of a sentence. We're in the middle of a, a statement. And uh, verses 21 through 26 uh, is that statement uh, or, that, or that sentence. Uh, those verses are commonly pointed to as uh, one of the most pivotal, if not the most pivotal statement of salvation and of justification and of the cross that one will find in the New Testament. Uh, but I have to say, at the same time, I would not dispute that, uh, but I have always been somewhat perplexed by these verses, if only because Paul is saying so much. Uh, I, I don't think, and this is saying a lot for Paul, I don't think there is anywhere in all of his writings that his thought is so compressed and where he is saying so much in such a short span of time as in these verses. And so one of the tasks of preaching, as we know, and Paul himself would have done this. Remember, his, his letters were just condensed form uh, of his thought. And he was eager to, to visit the churches so that he could preach long sermons to them. I, I always remind people he preached so long once, uh, he literally killed someone because that person fell out of the window and died. Thankfully, he was able to, to raise that person. But this is compact thought that he would expound. And that's what the preaching is. And so when we find his, his thought so compact, certainly we would look to the preaching as a chance uh, to bring out the full meaning. What we have uh, here in all of these verses, verses 21 through 26, are, in essence, the essential features of our salvation. And that's why this, this passage would so often be pointed to as one of the cardinal, if not the cardinal statement of salvation in the New Testament. And if we do not grasp the features here that are set forth for the church, then... Uh, then uh, our view of the gospel will always be obscured, if not uh, outright uh, heretical and wrong. In verses 21 through 24, which we considered last time, Paul lays out many of these features. We saw that the central category uh, was justification. Justification seen as something that God does for the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God is the one who justifies, and if God has justified someone, who is there to condemn? That's, in essence, the whole summary of the epistle. It is, Paul says, a free and a gracious justification, which means, again, justification 
a judicial reckoning of righteousness. A declaration that one who is sinful is now regarded as being righteous. We read in chapter 4 verse 5 that God justifies the ungodly. He isn't saying, I regard you as righteous because you're righteous. He says, I look upon you as a sinner, but now I regard you as one who's righteous. That's the great and the glorious news of the gospel. And, and Paul is at pains to explain how such a thing was ever possible. How God ever devised such a way uh, to, to justify sinners. But Paul's point uh, in those prior verses is that this is the gift, the free gift of God for anyone and everyone who has faith. There's no other way to be justified, to be considered righteous before God, for all have fallen short. But all who have faith receive this gift. And it comes to us, this is the final thought, which he then continues in verse 25. It comes to us through, that is the gift of justification, the gift of righteousness, to the one who has faith. It comes to us through, he says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Final phrase of verse 24. So we who have faith are justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But that immediately raises two questions, uh, which Paul goes on to answer in these two verses. Uh, the first in the first part of 25, and then the second question in the second half of that verse and the next verse. And I had intended to answer both questions, but uh, by the time I was done answering the first, uh, I, I didn't have any room left in my sermon. So we'll just divide the two questions into two sermons. But let's consider what they are now. The first question is, again, God is freely justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, raising this question, what does he mean by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? How did Christ redeem us and from what? That's the first question. But then the second question, which uh, really does deserve its own sermon, and that is why did God choose this manner and this method of justification? In other words, why the cross? That's one of the great questions. Certainly the questions which other religions asked of Christianity. Was it really necessary for Jesus, the Son of God, as you claim, to die on the cross for me to be pardoned? Was it not possible for God to devise another way in his great wisdom and power? No, Paul says, this had to be the way. It's not one of many options. It's the only way if I, a sinner, was to be justified. If I, a sinner, was to be uh, if I if I was to be made righteous in the sight of God and to use the language of this text, if God's wrath was to be propitiated. And so these are the two questions which come to us and which Paul answers. But we we focus here in this sermon uh, simply on the first of these. The method of redemption or the manner of redemption. Look here, Paul is saying Christ Jesus is our redemption, he said in verse 24. Which means, very simply, he's our redeemer. He's our savior. As a result of his actions, we are saved. What we read about in the Gospels, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, his going to the Father, his returning from the Father to us, all of this comprises our salvation and our redemption. But what does that mean to speak of redemption? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 25, whom God set forth, Again, having just said, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24, verse 25, whom God set forth. In other words, he's saying as he looks to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God was doing something. He was setting forth his own idea and his own way of salvation. Salvation here is seen as his idea, God the Father. It's his plan and his action. In other words, 
uh, as it is sometimes uh, falsely put, uh, that the son was devising a way for the father to accept and then executing his own idea, Paul is saying, no, this is not something that the son proposed to the father in order to save the elect. But rather, as we read in Hebrews, that the son and throughout the gospel of, G- of John, that the son comes in obedience to the father. Lo, I have come to do your will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, or 7 rather. And that's a quote, quotation from uh, Psalm 94, I think. One of the Psalms. He comes in obedience to the Father's will. He comes to do the Father's will. Not to persuade the Father. But to do what the Father has already devised. And it was the, the Father's good pleasure to crush him. To put him to open grief. To make him a sacrifice for sin. That's what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. But in speaking this way, Jesus coming to bring expression to the will of the Father, the will of God. Paul is pointing to the way that God's will is made known. The way it is revealed openly to man, which has been a constant theme so far. Paul continually uses the word revelation. uh, That uh, the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, and, and so the same idea is, is found here. Well, it's, uh, the righteousness is revealed in verse 21. Here in verse 25, it isn't the word revealed, but it's set forth. The emphasis here is in the way that God was openly declaring. He was setting forth something about himself in relation to man. He was revealing something for man to behold in Jesus Christ, his son. And this becomes clear when you complete the thought, which we will not complete this time, uh, stated twice, uh, once in verse 25, once in verse 26, the words to demonstrate. And then again in verse 26, to demonstrate. God set forth his son to demonstrate something. And again, to demonstrate something else. He was speaking to man. He was demonstrating something for man to see and to behold. He was making something unmistakably clear in the same way uh, that the law did. We know that the law speaks, uh, Paul says, or whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Well, God is speaking in the law, but he's also speaking to man when he set forth his son. Well, what did he do? What did he set forth? He set forth Christ Jesus. It is he whom God set forth, his own son manifested in the flesh. And he did so like this, as a propitiation, whom God set forth as a propitiation. And, uh, and I've already indicated that this would become the focus of the sermon, a word worth pondering, a word that ought to be spoken by Christians, just like justification. We ought to know what it means, we ought to speak the word. And if people don't know what it means, then we ought to be eager to tell them. Jesus Christ is my advocate with the Father. He is God's uh, propitiation for my sins. But here's a word that ought to be explained. It needs to be defined. And I confess, if uh, if it's any help to you, that I had to do much study this week just to drill the idea in my head. Was I really clear what it meant in an unmistakable way so that I could preach it? Uh, and there was no book which, is, which was more helpful in defining it. I was able to read sermons and commentaries as I often do. But there's one book in particular which really focused on this word. Uh, and that is Leon Morris' book on the cross. 
where he is at pains to describe what the word means. And one of the reasons we have to take pains to explain what the word means is not simply that we don't know what it means, but because, as a matter of fact, this word became the focal point of a debate between uh, liberal and evangelical scholars or or liberal and reformed scholars in the 20th century. Uh, This was a word which became especially the focus of the liberal gospel in rejection to 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 the evangelical gospel. If you take an RSV today, the Reformed Standard Version, or the New Reformed Standard Version, that's what you'll find in all the liberal churches. That's the liberal translation. And I confess, I grew up reading it, because I grew up in the mainline Presbyterian church. You will never find this word. Propitiation does not exist in that version. It occurs in the old versions, and it occurs in many of the new versions, but it does not occur in that version. This is a word which you will find many times in the Greek New Testament, But it is not translated as propitiation. Instead, if you look to that version, you will find a word which is closely associated and another possible meaning for the word, hilasterion, that's the Greek word, and that word is expiation. Expiation. Now, both ideas, let me say, are thoroughly biblical. Christ is our expiation. Christ is our propitiation. I have no interest in pitting the two ideas against each other. As I say, Christ is both. But it's the liberal scholar, the liberal preacher who does. But my interest is in knowing the mind of the Apostle Paul in this passage. Did he mean to say propitiation or did he mean to say expiation? Well, let me define each word. Expiation means the removal of guilt or of sin. And closely connected to this is the idea of atonement. It is the pardoning of sin or the removal of sin. And in that sense, it is declared Christ is our expiation. To that, I would say amen. It's one of the great emphases of Hebrews. But propitiation means something else. And you might guess as soon as I define it why the liberal would object. Propitiation means the removal of of wrath. And so expiation means the removal of sin or guilt. Propitiation means the removal of wrath. Expiation looks upon the sinner. Propitiation looks upon God. Expiation takes away man's sin. Propitiation takes away God's wrath. Do you understand the difference? I'm trying to be as clear as I possibly can be. But this is the real issue for the liberal. It turns out that their interest has nothing to do with words, but with ideas. The reason that the liberal translators, the most famous of whom was C.H. Dodd, translate this word as expiation is that they do not believe in the wrath of God. It's a concept that they believe is not only alien to scriptures, but which is blasphemous to suggest that God is a God full of anger and full of wrath. And like the pagan deities, he has, his wrath has to be propitiated through sacrifice. They simply reject the, the idea completely. And so their theology forces them to reject what is unquestionably the superior translation, not expiation, but propitiation. But we suffer no such constraints. We are able, for one thing, simply to take the more natural meaning. If Paul says propitiation, hilasterion, propitiation being the more natural rendering, then we are prepared to accept it, period. And we are also aware, uh, not just looking at the word itself, but the broader context informs our understanding of this particular verse and this particular word. 
And, and, and so we are aware, uh, Morris does a wonderful job of explaining this. He makes this verse, the key verse in his exposition of what the word means. That the thing that Paul has been pinpointing in the verses that lead up to this verse as man's cardinal problem is the fact that God is full of wrath. Paul does not share the vision of God that, uh, that the liberals uh, entertained of the 20th century. The great theme of chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20, which lead up to what he's saying, the statement in chapter 3 verse 21 through 26, is the wrath of God which has been, which, which is, excuse me, revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He is at pains to express this in an unmistakable way. He explains to us the fact and the reality of God's wrath. And that being the case, is it not natural here, not only from a consideration of the word itself, but from the context, that it would be more natural here to immediately follow with the idea, not of expiation, the removal of sin, but of propitiation, the removal of wrath. What, what he says about the wrath of God is that it rests upon all alike. For all alike are sinners and are thus under it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are liable to judgment and condemnation. The wrath of God is being revealed against everyone. And the question which man has and which the gospel answers is what is man to do? How can man solve the dilemma which is presented and frankly which Paul says is so obvious in chapters 1, 2, and 3? Even the pagan who never heard the gospel is aware of the wrath of God. It's revealed to him in an unmistakable way. In providence and in nature. And even in his own heart. And the wonderful news of the gospel Paul says. The gospel that he's so eager to preach. And that he's not ashamed to preach to all men alike. And that he's a debtor to preach to Jews and Greeks alike. Is that God has solved it for him. God has solved the dilemma for man. That is not to say that he has forgotten his wrath. Paul is not a preacher of the liberal gospel. In fact, uh, if, if we've listened to Paul, Paul is saying that he's still revealing it even now. And he will go on revealing it until the end of the age and even into eternity through the fires of hell themselves. There is no use in denying this. You do not resolve the dilemma by denying the reality and indeed the awful reality of the wrath of God. That is not the gospel. And yet that is the liberal gospel. Oh, but thank God, Paul says, there is indeed a way to escape his wrath. Set forth by God himself to be set free and brought out from under it and dealt with favorably as sons and as righteous sons. And that is what what Paul is talking about here, that God has declared or he has set forth to man a way for him to be set free, that he may be indeed delivered from the wrath of God. And that is the gospel he is concerned to preach. And that way which God has set forth as a propitiation, that is the removal of his wrath, is found in only one place. And this is at the center of Paul's preaching of the gospel. It is found in the blood of Jesus, he says. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The The propitiation God set forth is found in the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed, 
which was poured out, and even, to use the language of Hebrews and of the Old Covenant, which was sprinkled in the holy place of heaven. So not the blood which ran through his veins while he was alive on this earth, but the blood which he poured out on the cross, the shed and the sprinkled blood. And so Paul is, of course, referring here to the cross. It is there, Paul says, that God set forth his son and made him to be a propitiation for our sins by his blood, poured out and spilled. His blood which is shed there is precisely what propitiates the wrath of God. Which means God's wrath is dealt with there and it is turned aside once and forever. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, the second part. But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. Well, I confess that is a statement about expiation. But the point is there is a finality which Christ achieves by shedding his blood, verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. But here Christ has shed his blood. God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. And so let us consider the fuller argument. Let us accept that God is indeed full of wrath toward the sinner. We need not repeat the arguments here of chapters 1 through 3. Let us also accept that his wrath cannot be turned aside by any of my puny efforts. I am unable by anything that I do to propitiate God's wrath. Oh, but Paul says, there's something that can. There is something that can propitiate the wrath which is against sin and against the sinner. And that which can, he says, is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are reminded here of the arguments of the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17, for instance, uh, when he speaks of his taking on the likeness of our flesh and blood, becoming one like us. For, to what end and for what purpose? Chapter 2, verse 17. And notice the similarity of language. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And then listen to this. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here is what Christ achieves and accomplishes in becoming one like us. Not only does he expiate, he propitiates. Not only does he pardon, but he turns aside the wrath of God. This is the argument indeed of the whole book. Let me read just one other passage pointing to his blood and what it accomplishes and what it achieves. But Christ, chapter 9, verse 11, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There you see the thought. He achieved redemption once for all by shedding his blood. A redemption, a propitiation, an expiation that never needs to be repeated. For if the blood of bulls and goats, he goes on, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Oh, it is so wonderful to consider. Hebrews is saying, Paul is saying that the very son of God took on flesh and became one like us. And that he suffered all that my sin deserved and that he bore the full penalty, which was the wrath of God. 
That's what he had to contend with there on the cross. Not just my sin, you see, but the wrath of God. That is what gave him such reluctance and such dread, which he expresses in the Garden of Gethsemane. He recoils with horror, not at the pains of the cross. For such a thought, bodily pain, uh, I would have to say, is but a trifle to the Son of God and his great and mighty spirit. The thing that made him recoil in his humanity was the thought of facing the full fury of the wrath of God on the cross. For God there to pour out all of his anger, all of his wrath upon the Son for our sins. As Isaiah says in chapter 33, or 53 rather, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are, we are healed. And like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who can imagine what this was like? Not just to, to suffer on the cross, the pains of the cross, the shame of the cross, but there to meet and to bear the wrath of God for sin. And who could have borne this awful burden but him? And do you see what is the result? It is that God's wrath is averted. It is turned aside for me because it was poured out on him for my sake. That is what propitiation means. And that is what the cross achieves. And do you realize now as a result of that, that God could never now have any wrath for the one for whom Christ died? No, not now that Christ has suffered. God would never waste one drop of that blood. He would never fail to honor that perfect sacrifice. No, God is pleased and God has accepted what, God, what Christ, his son, has offered. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The good pleasure of the father rests upon the son. In that he offered himself for sinners. And in spilling his blood and offering that for their sins. I say again, he not only atones and expiates, but he propitiates. He secures pardon and forgiveness, but he also turns aside the wrath of God. But we notice following this a familiar emphasis about faith. Which he repeats twice, verse 25, uh, through faith, and then verse uh, 26, to the one who has faith. And that has been the emphasis up to this point, and it continues to be emphasis. In, in fact, chapter 4 is uh, the grand exposition of faith, one of the grandest in Scripture, uh, standing alongside Hebrews chapter 11. And so, once again, we see what God has done. He set forth his son as a propitiation, a propitiatory sacrifice which satisfies and turns aside the wrath of God. But we're left wondering, why are all not saved? Something which I at times wonder myself, something which 
uh, another 20th century liberal theologian, as he stood in wonder of what Christ achieved on the cross, wondered himself. How is it that Christ is not the Savior of all? God's salvation is so great, and, and the blood of Christ is so great. How could one single sin be left in the whole universe now that it has been poured out? But we have to be careful here. This is the road that leads to universalism. And so we must understand why it is that God's wrath is turned aside for some, and yet it still rests on others. And the answer is simply, as we find here and uh, throughout the New Testament, not all have faith. In fact, very few have faith. And what is faith? Well, this, again, will be the great question of chapter 4. But let me give you my answer based upon that chapter. And it's the answer I gave last time. In fact, I think I asked the very question. What is faith? Faith is my certainty that God's word is true. That's my definition of faith. It's also Calvin's definition of faith. My certainty that God's word is true. That's what faith is. And more and more I'm seeing that Calvin was right. Uh, Sometimes people take issue with Calvin, by the way, that he went too far. That certainty was a little too strong. I don't think so. I don't think so. The emphasis ever and again in scripture is upon certainty when describing faith. And so faith, with respect to the gospel, is my belief that if God set forth his son as propitiation by his blood, if God is indicating to man that his wrath is averted by the blood which is spilled, by faith I accept that is true. By faith I accept that is my salvation, that God is is indeed no longer angry with the sinner who has faith in his son. But let us be careful here to notice the precise language. Notice especially the preposition through, through faith, so that the full phrases, and this this concludes my exposition, so we're not even finishing verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Here, Paul is careful to say that faith is not a work. It's not something we do that God rewards with salvation. It is not as though God is saying, because you have faith, I will save you. That is the wrong view of what Paul is saying here. And that skews the emphasis upon salvation as something God does, his plan and his achievement for man. Instead, Paul's point is that faith is what saves me because... It becomes the instrument or the channel by which I am made to partake of this redemption. By his blood, Jesus propitiates the wrath of God. That's God's accomplishment of my salvation. And through faith, I am made to partake of that blessed blood so that I am saved. Always notice the prepositions, beloved. And notice the precise role of faith in our salvation. Faith is not our savior. Jesus is. Nor is faith conceived of as a human work. Our faith is placed in him. It is faith in Jesus. And that is why it saves. Jesus set forth uh, as our propitiation. Not because faith is any virtue in itself to propitiate the wrath of God. Again, to use that language. Faith is not what propitiates An angry God, full of vengeance and wrath. It's the blood of Jesus. But faith saves me because it places me in the one who does propitiate that wrath. And it gives me an interest in his saving work. By faith, all that he has and all that he has accomplished becomes mine. 
Again, it's the instrument, it's the channel. It's the thing that brings me into saving contact with Jesus Christ and lays hold of him and makes him my own. As the guilty sinner standing under the wrath of God, we don't lay hold of our works and take refuge in them. We lay hold on Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. Faith is not our Savior. It is what brings us into saving contact with the Savior. And the reason it is by faith is because, again, anticipating the arguments of Romans chapter 4, only faith can receive salvation as a gift. This is something Machen argues in his book, What is Faith? Whereas by works, man is always trying to offer something to God. But faith offers nothing to God. It only receives and rests and accepts salvation freely from God as demonstrated in his son. As offered to man in the gospel, to use the language of the shorter catechism, saving faith receives and rests upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. It's not man striving, you see, for God's approval. It's man finding it in Jesus and resting in that. And so faith looks to Calvary and says, there I see the Lamb of God offered for my sins. When I look upon him there, I realize my true poverty. I offer nothing. He offers all. Here is a display of grace and love which humbles me to the dust. Yet it also inspires in me a view of God's wrath that makes me tremble. Did I ever get a view of God's wrath like this? No. Nothing makes me see it so much as that God should uh, lay my sins upon the cross, uh, his son upon the cross, that he should suffer and die for me there. But the wonderful thing I discover as I cast my gaze upon the cross is that God's wrath cannot touch me now. For there Christ says to his own, fear not, I have made all things new. It is the Father's pleasure to give you salvation. I have suffered all, I have paid all. So I see now that he has, uh, I, I see that now that he has died. There is no wrath left for me. I am set free. I am redeemed and justified. God's wrath and anger for sin is no more as far as I am concerned. And what then can I say to that? Where does faith find any reason to doubt that God is now pacified now that Christ has shed that precious blood and offered it to the Father for me? Would I dare suggest that God would reject that sacrifice, that he is still angry? Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 35 come to mind here. Paul applying this truth to the believer, the one who has faith. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see, God has already proved the case. He's already set forth his arguments. He's already rendered his verdict. And by faith, I come to see this and I accept this all is true in my case. And it is in that sense that faith becomes the instrument or the means or the channel by which all for which Christ has suffered and died becomes mine. The means by which God and the sinner are reconciled 
In my place condemned he stood. And would God now condemn me? You see, that's the argument of faith. No, he won't. He will pardon freely. He will justify. And having said all that, do you realize that we are only beginning to understand the full depths and the meaning of this gospel righteousness that Paul is speaking of? I have only expounded these few words whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. But do you see how much he is saying? And do you realize why he has still so much to say again about the gospel righteousness which is revealed to faith alone and by which we are justified? The gospel righteousness of Christ alone, found in Christ alone. But there it is. What a gospel, what a savior. Uh, And let us be eager not only to believe it, but to go on to know as much as we can about it in the weeks to come. Amen. And let us now come to the table.